Lord, we just thank you for tonight. We ask you to get, be with us, guide and lead us as we look at your word and show us what you would have us to see from, from this section of scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing Isaiah 45. The first part of it was talking about Cyrus being raised up to, to deliver Israel and that God tells the future and, and challenges the the idols to be able to tell the future, or at least their prophets, <laughs> the idols' prophets to be able to tell the future, and lays the foundation that God is a God that knows what's going to happen. Uh, 180, 180, 174 years before Cyrus. And he says Cyrus is coming. But he also just challenged... The prophecy was 180, 174 years before Cyrus came to power and, and, and uh, said that Israel would go back. Isaiah's talking about him by name. By name. By name. By and name he's and not even born. he's not born. Matter of fact, this, the Medo-Persian Empire isn't even an empire at this point. They're just kind of uh, the empire at the time of this prophecy is Syria. Okay, is is, is Assyria. Not even the Babylonian Empire, which is next, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, which Cyrus is going to be the ruler of. That's like if somebody said something like, like something 150 years from now, this is going to happen. And, okay. it, would be, it would be similar to if you went all the way back to the beginning of our country and said, you know, uh, Trump would be president in oh, yeah. 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the type of prophecy this would be. Number one, who's Trump? Who are you talking about? Uh, and how do you know all of this? Yeah. So that's what this, this is what's happened in here. All right, so continuing at verse 12. I have made the earth, created man upon it. I, even my hands, have strengthened, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. I will build my city. And he shall go, let go of my captives, not for a price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord, the, the labor of Egypt, the merchants, merchandise of Ethiopia, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over un, unto you, and they shall be yours. And they shall come after you in chains, and they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto you, and they shall make supplication unto you, saying, Surely God is in you. And there is none else. There is no God. Verily, you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, this, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them, and they shall go to confusion together, that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he that established it, he that created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have, I have not spoken in secret in dark places of the earth. I, have not, I said not to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So we're going to look at this here and we started verse 12 saying, God again says, I have made the earth, I have created man upon it. Over and over, God says, I have made 
the earth. And I have created man. And it's kind of funny that in our day, it's obvious that even in Isaiah's day, there was some trouble with this idea. How did the earth begin? Because he's repeated this so many times in the book of Isaiah. God says, I have created. David in the Psalms kept saying, God has created. In the beginning of Genesis, God has created. So they're the same as now, but some people didn't believe that God yep. created. Yep. Again, nothing new under the sun. Yeah. All right. Did they call it evolution back then? No. But they, they had this problem with, was there a, was there a creation? Was there a creator? Uh, or at the very least, who created? Because if you have multiple gods, you might have problems with other creations out there. So God is saying, I have, I have made the earth and I created man. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all the hosts have I commanded. All the armies or the stars or the angels he's created, he has commanded. But he says, you look at this, he goes, my hand, not my hands, but my hand has stretched forth the heavens. And when we think about the number of stars out there and how big heaven is, God is just saying, hey, you know, it was nothing to me. I just, I just grabbed hold of it and stretched it out. But this is where God is at. He says, I've done this. And he's really setting out that I am above all things. He's just been busy challenging the, the idols. Well, if you, you idols, and remember we read, he goes, you idols that cannot speak, and you men who have taken the trees, and we, this was the first part, one of the first times when he said, you, you, when you go out to the forest, you cut down a tree, you make a fire and cook your meal, and then you make, a, make a, you know, some lumber out of it, and then you take the rest of it, and you make an idol out of it, and then you bow down to it and say, this is my God. Yeah, after you've used the same piece of wood for everything else. This is the confusion of the world without God. And it is funny to me to talk to people so often that will say diversely opposite positions in the same breath when they're talking to you, and you point it out to them and go, oh, no, no, that's, that, that's not true. You know, or, or yes, they're both true. I used to love doing that when I was back in college. They would say two diametrically opposed things. I go, which do you believe? Both. I go, but they're opposites. Things can't be good and bad at the same time. Oh, well, I believe, but I believe it. Okay. You know, where did your brain disappear to? <laughs> uh, you know, and this is the problem. In this, and Christians are accused of having no, no thinking capacity. You guys just believe what you're told. Well, most of the world believes what they're told. And unfortunately, they don't even know who's telling them this stuff. They're getting it from television, from news, from, from schools that have no solid teachings or, or thinking, and they don't analyze whatever it is. They just believe what they're told and absorb what they're told. And this is something that is very important. When we get into God's word and we really truly believe the way God says, we will be thinking without contradictions. We won't have the problems. Now, our contradictions will come when we disagree with the word of God. You know, well, God, you know, I know you say this, but I'm not sure that I feel that way, so I don't know that I believe it. Now I'm starting to deal with contradictions. God's word is true, but my feelings trump God's word. And a lot of Christians live that way. God, I know you say this, but. You know, God, I know your word is true, but. 
you know, but I just don't feel like it, or I don't see it, or I don't understand it. And God says, of course you don't understand it, because my ways are higher than your, your ways. My thoughts are higher than your ways. Just accept what I say. And it is so much fun to live believing God's word. God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to accept that you're true. God, I don't understand how this can be for good, but you say it, it's good. God, I don't understand how, you, how this can be good from your perspective, but you have a greater perspective than I do, so I'm going to accept your way. And when I just rest in him, life is easy. But isn't life easier when you start obeying God? Yes. And you just trust in him, yeah. and you say, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, I'm not. I love, I love being able to turn to God and say, oh, God, you're in control, I'm not. I'm just so happy that I'm not in control. Because I'd mess everything up. And I've proved it over and over in my lifetime. When I try to take over, I mess it up. And it's so much fun just to let God. All right, and then in verse 13, he kind of goes back to Cyrus. I have raised him up in righteousness. He wasn't the most righteous man, but God says, I have raised him up. I will direct him in all his ways. He shall build my city, and, let, and he shall let my captives, not for a price or a reward, saith the Lord. Cyrus, when he let the people of Israel return, really got nothing out of it. Matter of fact, it cost him money because they took the funds from the royal treasury to build the city and the, and the temple. Cyrus paid for all that stuff. Out of, you know, not that he was going to get anything out of it, back out of it. I think a lot of it was because he was pointing out, here Cyrus, your name is in our book that was written 200 years ago. You know, you're, you're going to send everybody home. And he believed it and he sent, he sent the Israelites home. And then gave them the, the funds to be able to build when they had no funds. They were broke little puppies with no jobs, no businesses, nothing to even give him, give him wealth and taxes back even. And he says, here, there you go. Build your, build your city, build your temple. Here, matter of fact, here, you're, here the, he gives them all the idols that were taken from the temple that were captured in Babylon and gives them back to them to take back. You know, so this is a very big deal. So we have all of this going on. Cyrus is going to say, go, go build, go build your city. Go build your city. And what a blessing we see from all of this. His name was given specifically. And remember, we said this, Cyrus is not a Hebrew name. There's no reason to find the name Cyrus in a Hebrew Bible, and yet it's there. Which is why when this, when they, when this, before this book came out, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they swore that this part of Isaiah had to have been written two or three hundred years later. So he was Gentile? Yes, he was Gentile. Uh, he was the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire, the one that replaces Babylon. So here we see this great big problem, and God says, this is what's going on, and he's going he's to rebuild my temple, my city, and he's going to do it for no profit, no gain. When he sends the people out there, he is gaining nothing for this activity. He's, given, he's giving great mercy and, bless, and grace to these people. He's saying, I'll pay, I'm going to pay for the constructions. I'm going to pay for, the, for all the materials. You guys get to build it, but I'll, I'll pay for the materials. 
Matter of fact, when they were first sent out, they asked for a guard to go with them, to guard them as they were headed back. And he gave them the guard. I mean, he gave them just about anything they asked for. If they had asked for builders, he probably would have given them builders. Yeah. And I think part of it is Daniel probably showed him this verse. Here, Cyrus, your name is in our book. And then he was very touched that his name was in their book you know, 200 years earlier. You know, I'm sure he was asking Daniel, Daniel, did you write my name in that book? It might be a different Cyrus. <laughs> different Cyrus. So who knows, who knows what he was really thinking of all this, but he was going to go in. And then we end up with this very interesting thing, verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, the laborer of, of Egypt, the merchants of Ethiopia, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, unto you, and they shall be yours, and they shall come unto you with in chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down before unto you, and you shall make and make supplication unto you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is none else, there is no God. That has not happened as far as I can find in history. This is the this is going to be probably the millennial kingdom when they're going, when Israel is elevated to the top of the heap. I don't know any place where this event has happened. Now certain events may be partially part in here, but Egypt, Ethiopia, and the Sabians, which are people aren't quite sure exactly where the Sabians are. Many people think they're part of Ethiopia, others think that they're in the south. Uh, southwestern part of uh, Arabia. Uh, nobody knows. Apparently, they're very tall people, according to the scripture. The only reference in the other reference we have in the Bible is in Genesis 10, 13, uh, 10 7, the table of of nations. The Sabians are listed as a as a son of Cush, which would put them probably in the uh, Middle East or African area, because Cush inhabited Africa and the, and the Middle East. Huh? 10-7. The Table of Nations is where you have your uh, genealogy in chapter 10. And we trace all of our nations to that, to that uh, genealogy. And because it is Cush, it probably is an African, African tribe or at the very least a Middle Eastern nation. Uh, and he says, they will come to you and they're going to say, surely your God is in you, which is very unusual for the Jews. The Jews do not think of God being in them. Uh, they, think of they think they're special to God. They think they're the bride, of, you know, the, the bride of God, the Father. They believe that they are special, that God chose them, which he did. But that doesn't make them any more special than anybody else that has God's grace. And, but they don't really think of God being in them in most cases. So this is a big deal. This is an interesting. We're in the section. If you don't remember, when, I, when we switched over to chapter 39 in Isaiah, we, we, we mentioned that we are in a switch, or chapter 40, where we start seeing more of God's grace. And the book of Isaiah is broken up in 66 chapters, and it breaks out pretty much just the way the Bible does. 39, the first 39 chapters show a God of, of vengeance and, and anger, primarily with grace and mercy in it. The last 27 show a God of grace and mercy with a little bit of vengeance. You know, very much like the Bible. The Old Testament shows a God with a lot of vengeance, with grace and mercy still there, and the, and the New Testament shows him mostly love, mercy, and, and grace with some vengeance. And we're not, we're not in that same part. where we start seeing many of this, the New Testament things, we see the Gentiles being saved. We see the Gentiles being, being accepted by God. We see the Gentiles 
coming into God's kingdom, we see um, God showing grace and mercy to the Gentiles. And Isaiah talks a lot to the Gentiles in the last 27 chapters of the book. That's quite an interesting, interesting thing. Now, was it done on purpose? I don't know. God, God was in control of all of that. Uh, and he was in control of how this book was laid out. So we see this thing that says these Gentiles are going to come to you and they're going to say your God is in you. And again, that is something that is very unusual for a, for a Jewish person to be, think. They didn't think of God being in them. They believed that God would maybe come on them, that God was with them. But even for most Jews, the idea of having a God that personally loves them is very abstract. They're very much like most religions. As long as I do good, God will bless me. And as long as I go out and give my sacrifices, I'll be okay for a year until it's time to offer the next sacrifice for my sin. And if I happen to die without my sacrifice, God's going to reject me. And that's a sad way to live. But yet, that's the way most people live today. And unfortunately, many Christians live with that kind of thought of God. God, if I just do bad things, you're going to reject me. And I may not go to hell, but you're going to reject me and make me feel miserable. That was the way Job felt. You know, and Job's friends definitely felt that way. Job, what did you do that was so bad that God took everything away from you? Nothing. You got to go quit lying, quit lying, Job. You did something. How many times have Christians come against other Christians and use just that kind of language? Well, you, obviously you did something wrong or this would not have happened. This was the way they thought. And yet God is saying, your God's going to be in you and then he says, they continue in verse 15, Verily you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. This is the people talking. Your God is in you, your God is hidden. To the world, God seems hidden. Have you ever shared something that God has done to, to your unsaved friends and they look at you and like, oh, you, you are just such a lucky person, or... You were just so fortunate, and you ascribe that to God? You know, you, you know, it's just amazing when you talk to a non-Christian who has no comprehension of God, and they just look at you in this dumbfounded look like, you believe there's a God? You think God cares for you? You believe that God actually works in your life? And, and they're thinking, and the sad thing is when a Christian will do this to you you really believe in a personal God? Don't you believe God died for your sin? Well, yeah, he died for my sins so I could be saved, but you know, that's about all he's done for me. You think God cares about your problem? And you'll hear this a lot of times. You think God cares about what I do for work? You think God cares about who I marry? Absolutely. He gives us all kinds of guidance in the scripture. You know, he, he's not going to tell us, go find this particular job or marry this particular person, but he definitely has plans, and he definitely gives us the framework of what to look for. Mainly, another Christian. <laughs> you know, marry, marry a Christian, do work that's going to be ethical and, and good. Don't do jobs that are going, you know, don't work in an industry or a place that is, is going to cause harm and draw people away from God. You know, there are a lot of things. He doesn't give us an exact principle, but he does say, you know, what, what if so of your hand finds to do, do it well. And, you know, all these different things he puts in there, the Bible gives us lots of principles on how to make decisions. And this is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is so important. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. 
we get in there, we, we look at his word, we go, God, how should I, how should, what should I do, what should I not do? And he gives us a lot of what not to do. And he kind of nudges us in the ways to do. And then we walk into something, we go, yeah, this one fits it. This fits what God says to do, and I'm going to try walking in it. And this is why it's important to follow his word. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what, what does it mean to live victoriously? Most of it is to live by God's word. Live in the peace of God's word. I usually feel I live a very victorious life overall. I've tried to follow God's word as often as I can. There's times when I haven't, and I don't feel victorious about those periods of time. But when I just look at it and say, God, you're in charge, and you're, you're going you're gonna to make this good, I can live in victory. God, you're, you're, this, is, this is wonderful. Look what, look what you've done. Look where you've brought me. Look at the peace you're giving me and what you promised me in heaven and be able to look at this is where we're to be. And it's a wonderful place to be. And it says, the, the people look at it and it says, you know, you've got this God who hides himself. You know, well, I'm not hidden from us, but when you're living in the dark, I guess God is, is hidden from you. If you're living, living stored away in the darkness, then, then he is very hidden. Verse 16 says, They shall be ashamed and confounded, all of them. They shall go into confusion together that are makers of idols, humiliated, and you know, uh, they're going to be humiliated. They're going to be ashamed, the followers of idols. And this, again, talks about the end days. When people have to stand before God, I've even witnessed to people that, you know, that I tell them, you know, you're going to, all, all people are sinners and they're going to go, well, you just wait till I get to God and I will just give them a piece of my mind about this. Oh, really? And I'm going, okay, if you really believe that, you don't know who God is and you don't. But when you stand before God, you're not going to find your voice at all. You know, as much as I love the song, I can only imagine, and you know, will I dance with the Lord, or will I fall on my face? Well, you know, that first meeting with God, we're going to fall on our face. Everybody in the scripture who even sees an angel falls on their face. Not, not, not that first, maybe not even the first 100 visits before God. We might eventually get used to it and be able to, to stand before him, but those first visits... I think we're going to be so overwhelmed and in so much in awe, we're going to fall. But when we first see the Father in all of his holiness and righteousness, even in our glorified bodies, I think we're going to be overwhelmed. I really do because we see it all through Scripture. John, in the book of Revelation, when he stands before, before the throne, falls down on his face as a dead man. I think we're going to have that same type of reaction. I could be wrong because we have a glorified body. Who knows? Who knows how that will react in God's presence? But you know, to be in God's presence, we get little tastes of it in this lifetime every once in a while. When I'm praying, when I'm studying, when I'm worshiping before God, get a small taste of being in his presence. And to me, it's just overwhelming. It, re it really is overwhelming when I get just the, the lightest little touch of his presence upon me. But and I just can't imagine, like, are we all awake lying or what? I mean, no, because he is omnipresent. We will all have yeah, him, at a, we will all have an equal part of him yeah. instantly. But we can't really understand this idea of something that inhabits everything yeah. equally. Yeah. 
If you've ever read the uh, Left Behind series when it talks about standing before the white throne judgment, Jenkins actually pictures of everybody being talked to individually at the same moment by God at the white throne judgment. And he, he did a pretty good job of making it, you know, painting it in words. But that's what it's going to be like. And I don't know how he even came to that. It had to be a God thing for him to paint it the way he did. But it is just everybody standing before God and everybody getting a personal interview with God at the white throne judgment instantly at the same moment. And the same thing, though, for us in heaven. Every one of us have personal, private, intimate conversations with Jesus all at the same time. And he has a special name for all of us. When in Revelation says he will have a name that's just between him and us. And he remembers that name. And he'll remember that name. That will be kind of the, you know, we, the pet name that husbands and wives end up having for each other, you know, that, that's just theirs. You know, it's not one that everybody knows. The close intimate family might learn of it eventually, but it's their name. Their name for each other. And Jesus is going to have a name that's his name for us. And he's going to have special name, a special name for every single person. And he will know that, and it will be an intimate name with each person. And it's just amazing. Amazing when we think about God. And this is why I keep saying you know, over and over, no matter how big we think God is, we're not even close. No matter how omnipresent we think he is, we're not anywhere close. No matter how all-knowing we, we think he is, we're not even anywhere close. Because it's, he's, he just becomes bigger. The more I study physics, the more uh, physics, the more I understand that God is big and bigger than I ever comprehended. The more I think about time and space and and all of that, the more I realize that he is bigger than anything I can possibly comprehend. You know, when I think about how strong he is, the stronger I see things become, the more I realize that God is very strong, because he is stronger than anything that we can comp anything that we can comprehend. And if you get into science, you start thinking of gravitation and black holes and all these things that we think we cannot, that are so strong, and God is, oh, just, it's in my hand. This black hole that you think is so strong and destroys everything, it's in my hand. I'm in full control of it. Just a small thing in my, in my hand. So we need to really understand that whatever we believe of God is just the beginning. Whatever we believe of heaven is just the beginning of what heaven is, because our minds cannot imagine it. My mind definitely can't imagine it, because I'm not that creative. And even the most creative mind can't imagine heaven in its completeness. And this is what he's saying here. This, these people are saying that these makers of idol are just going to be ashamed and confused when they stand before God. They're going to uh, 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 don't have anything to say. And they may not even be saying, ah, ah, ah. They may just be shutting their mouth and saying, I am guilty, thinking I am guilty. Because God is going to show them that they are. When they stand before the white throne judgment, and God is going to say, this, you rejected me here, you rejected me here, you rejected me here, you rejected me here, you rejected me here. You are guilty. And they're going to know that they have no plea. Well, when we stand before the Bema seat, and God's going to say, you let me show you your rewards as he takes our works and puts them in the fire and sees what comes out. When we have yeah. given our life to Christ and we have let him work in us, there will be rewards. I do not believe there's a Christian out there that will have zero rewards. 
Now, maybe somebody who gets saved in the last second before they die because they waited to the last possible moment and have no service at all. But anybody who is truly saved is, and has had a chance to live most likely will have something. Some time in their life when they lived the right, made a right decision by grace. And the good news is, is when I surrender myself to God and let him do the work, which is when we don't think we've done anything, because that's what the work we're going to get rewarded for. God, that person came to Christ because of something I did? Who is that person? Well, that was your neighbor that was watching you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, who's that person? Well, that's the person you gave the money to the missionary so the missionary could, talk, could, could uh, witness to him. Oh, yeah, I knew nothing about that person. God says, yep, that's why you're getting rewarded. And then we'll go, God, what happened to all the people that I served in the church? Well, you got your reward. You got your recognition there. You weren't doing it, you weren't doing it for the right reason with them. Not everything we do, even though we get recognition, is going to be bad. But if our motive is to do it to look good, God says, you got your reward. That, that burns up. And those are the ones we're thinking of. Oh, God, I touched this person. I touched that person. I touched this person. He goes, well, you did those for the wrong reasons. That's gone. And God may have gotten glory out of it. But that doesn't mean that it was necessarily him doing the work. And so we look at this, and it says, these people are going to see and be in confusion because of their idols. And one of the sad things is, is how many idols there are even in America. All right? We don't have great big statues that we bow down, but we have huge idols. And in lately, we've been making great big things out of them. American Idol. You know, come, come worship these people because of how good they are to singing. You know, let's lift up these actors and actresses to be idols. And the term's out there a lot, and we've heard it so much that we kind of blow it off. And, but really, isn't that what they were trying to say? These people deserve your worship. Worship them. Now, they didn't come right out and say it, but that is really what they've done when they've talked about these people being idols. You know, the star, you know, follow the stars. All of these things are really, and then we have our idols of work and pleasure and money and all the other idols we have in America, especially, that we raise up. And we're starting to bring idols into this country, actual idols. So this is something that, it was one of the things that struck me when I lived in Baltimore, is that Baltimore was a Catholic, started out as a Catholic city and is still very predominantly Catholic. There are idols and statues all over their yards in people's homes. Some of them have been there forever because they're concrete and stuff, but they are Mary and Joseph and, and Peter and John and you know, all the saints out there are standing in their yards. Now, they're not bowing down to them in most cases, I don't think, but those are idols standing all over the place. A lot of, a lot of them pray to these idols. But we have these problems of how much idols are there in this world? And then we make our own idols. Look at my really beautiful car that I'm going to polish five times a week so that it doesn't ever get a scratch and keep a shine going on it. And, and I'm going to make sure that it keeps the, you know, the engines brand new and, and, and wonderful and, you know, and keep it nice and shiny and clean. A lot of people have known that the car has been their idol or their truck has been their idol and work has been their idol. I will give up everything just so I can get to the top of the business. I'm doing it for my family. 
That's what I did when I was working in there. I'm going to get to the top. I'm going to get, I'm going to, get to the top. You know, yeah, family, I'm doing this for you so you have food on the table. And I know you're not seeing me ever, but you know, I'm doing it for you. And we justify it, but we have set up an idol that's more important to us than God. Some people, it's just money. Get as much money as I can. God, you want my money? Uh-uh, my money. I work hard for my money. God, you don't get any of it. Church? No, you don't get any of my money either. I work real. You want, you want money, church? You get out of work for it. You know, uh, but we have all these things that go on that we get raised up to idols. Status. All kinds of things that get raised up to idols. And God says, if you're following idol, you're going to be ashamed and confused. But he says, but, in verse 17, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. So he says, Israel, you've got eternal, you've got eternal life. You're not going to be ashamed. We as Christians have eternal life. We will never be ashamed. When you're his child, you will not be ashamed. This is why it's very important when we meet people and talk to people who believe you can lose your salvation. I feel so sad for them. They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the sacrifice of Christ. They really don't even understand salvation by grace. And I know what they'll say. Well, you're saved by grace, but you've got to work to keep it. Well, I don't know what verse they're pulling that out of, but it's, uh, for by grace are you saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, I realize that that's another part, that's the second verse there, but they really have to be tied together. I cannot work for my salvation to get it or to keep it. The new saying they walk away from the That is where I would stand. Those of us who say that you cannot lose your salvation will tell you you never had it. That is why I keep making the statement over and over again, the, the sinner's prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner, I deserve punishment, I believe Jesus died for my, for my sins, come into my life and, and, and be my Lord, is the right, the right words. And just say, but just saying those words doesn't make you a Christian. You have to believe it. it has to be deeply believed. You're not just buying fire insurance by saying that prayer. You are committing your life to Jesus. And if I don't commit my life to the Lord and give him my life to do what I want, all I have done is said some words, and I may think that I'm saved from that point on. And I've met so many people that have said, I didn't believe it. It wasn't real. It wasn't, it wasn't valid. And I didn't know it until 20, 30 years later when I all of a sudden realized I did not know the Lord. And I've seen many, many people over the years in their 60s or 70s going to church all their life, trying to walk with God in, in their own flesh and works, realizing all of a sudden, I don't know this God that I've been talking about. Might have even given out tracts, invited people to church, but never knew the Lord. And that's a scary thought. But it's so simple, though. When, when you're his, yeah. he gives us the desire to give them up. Mm-hmm. And this is why I keep saying, when he lives in us, he changes us from the inside out. 
It may not show up for a year or two that I've been changed. But I know that I'm starting to be changed. I know my thinking is being changed. I don't act the way I used to do. I don't react the way I used to do. I get more generous. I get more loving. I get more merciful. I get more, you know, more kindness uh, over time. And for, for me, it took a long time to get to some of those. Some of it I got real quick. Other parts of it took a long time because God pickles us in the Holy Spirit and changes us from the inside out. And that's when you know it's real. You know, when God says, give something up, and you go, well, sure, God, why, you know, why do I want it? You know, and I've been there where I said, nope, nope, not giving that up, God. I'm not ready to give that up. And God says, okay, well, we'll ask you again in a couple months. Are you ready to get it? Nope, not yet, God. Are you ready to get Yeah, I have no reason to keep it. You know, I have no reason to keep doing this. Yeah, sure, we'll give it up. And it just, it's gone. It's gone. And God does supernatural healing on us in many areas of our life. And when we get saved, we are a brand new creation in Christ. I am a firm believer that something in your life must change when you get saved. At least one thing. And I'm not just talking a little tiny thing. I'm talking about one big difference in your life out of all the things that could possibly happen. And it may be as simple as all of a sudden you love being in his word. Or all of a sudden you love going to church. Or God takes away alcoholism from you overnight. Or smoking or drugs or whatever it might be. You know, he does at least one big thing for you that changes your life. And you go, God, you made me a new creation that day. You've got a lot of work to go to get the rest of it done. But I know that you have changed me. There's an opening. There's something you can look back on and say, you know, when Satan says, you know, what has God done for you? Well, yeah, hey, he did at least one big thing for me. Right here. And that is what we use for our testimony. And I've shared with you all, and, you know, when I got saved, God took a temper away from me. You know, that doesn't mean I've never lost my temper since then. But if you had known me before, my temper was flaring up every single day. And I was in fights every single day, even as young as I was. And I was angry, saying things to people. And if I hadn't got saved, my temper would have probably landed me in prison, you know, at the very least. But God took that away overnight. All kinds of testimonies where God has taken away alcohol, cravings for alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever that person's biggest problem that was going to get them in trouble. And I believe the thing that God takes away from most people is the, the biggest thing that's going to get them in trouble, the quickest. He says, this is gone. I want you to know this is me doing this. I've set, you, I've set you on a path. Walk in it. And then he slowly starts taking out the rest. Now, one of the things I've, I've, I used to always wonder, God, why, are you, why did you take so long to make my changes? And for some of these other people, you did them so quickly. One of the things I have learned over the years is I watch people who have had their lives changed drastically and quickly. They don't have a lot of empathy for people who have to grow slowly. They're always saying, well, God changed me overnight. Why doesn't he change you? And they get very proud a lot of times of what God did to them as if somehow they did it. Yeah. And they don't have a lot of empathy sometimes. So I think growing slow is probably better than having that great supernatural change overnight. Now, that supernatural change, great supernatural change is a wonderful testimony for, for the first few years. But if you 
try to get to a place where somehow you think, you know, well, I, I did this, you know, or, or look how special I am. God, God made big changes in my life. What's wrong with you? You know, don't you love God enough, you know, that you can get a big change in your life? And this is where some judgment can happen a lot of times. And I've seen it happen over and over with these guys that have some really big changes in there. Not all of them, but many of them. I've seen them get very, very self-righteous and judgmental of those who do not get the big changes. And I look at this and say, God, thank you. Thank you for changing them so greatly. You've used them greatly. Their testimony's big. You know, you took away their drugs, their alcohol, and their, and their uh, anger and bitterness all in one night. Wow, they're going to be noticed. God, why didn't you do that for me? I don't know. I didn't, well, I didn't have most of those problems, but you know, why, why didn't you make my, 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 my change more dramatic? He goes, that wasn't my plan for you. And this is what we've got to have is God has a plan for us. We live in that plan and don't judge other people, good or bad. You know, God, why did, why did you do so much for that person and not for me? That can be a very dangerous place to be because I can get very dissatisfied with what God has done. Or God, yeah, look at that person. You know, they, they haven't changed at all. What's wrong with them? We need to be very careful of all of that and make sure that we let people stand or fall before God. And this is something I talk a lot, a lot about. I want people to stand or fall before God. They don't have to stand or fall before me or anybody else. God is the only one that it matters. So if people want to judge me, it's, I just kind of, I usually don't even deal with it. It's like, God, teach them. Yeah. Teach them. You know, and I might tell them, I don't stand, you know, you're not my judge, God is. You know, probably won't even go that far because if they're judgmental, they're not going to like that statement anyway. Uh, but I'll tell a lot of people, especially now that I'm a pastor, but even before as I was leading people, go, what do you think? I'm going, it doesn't matter. I'm not your judge. I can tell you, I can tell you what I think the word of God says, but you're, You've got to stand before God. You've got to decide what you're going to believe and why you believe it. And this is important for us to be able to understand and accept people. Life is miserable for those who are trying to make everybody live by their standards. It's a terrible way to live. At least in my opinion, on the people I see, they're miserable. Nobody ever satisfies them. Nobody's ever meeting their, meeting their needs and treating them the way they want and acting the way they want and behaving just the way they want. And, you know, for me, I, I look at it like, what a boring world it would be if everybody was like me. It would be a boring world. You know, and they, they like to say, what would the church be like if everybody acted the way you did? Well, in my case, we'd have lots of teachers and no learners. That would be a terrible church. You know, we have a whole church full of teachers. All right, where are the learners? I've all, we've all prepared lessons. We all want to teach. Uh, you know, what a terrible church that would be. You know, God has fit us together in such a way that says we are individuals that make up the church. And individuals that are different are going to rub each other the wrong way so often. And this is why Satan can get into a church so easily and cause schisms and, and problems because I'm just an individual and I've got all kinds of burrs on me that are going to rub against you and your burrs and, your, and we're going to irritate each other and if I'm not careful, I'm going to judge you, you're going to judge me and we're going to be angry at each other and not, not wanting to talk anymore and, and breaking the church or leaving the church and, because that person was just not right. Yeah. One thing, I've often thought, could I work with myself? You know, because I know I'm a really good worker and I get a lot done and the more I thought about it over the years, 
the more I realized I probably couldn't work with myself. I'd be bumping into myself every time I turned around. You know, because we'd all be doing the same things. We'd all be going to the place that needs the most work at the same time and be bumping into each other and probably irritating the daylights out of each other. I can do it. I can do it. And it's the same thing in the church. We need every individual in the church to be the church. We need the teachers. We need the leaders. We need the followers. We need the givers. We need the prayers. We need the people who are weak that need, that need the ministering to. You know, we need each other. And the day we don't think we need any some certain people in the church, we are fooling ourselves and we probably don't belong there because we need everybody. And Paul did a great description of that in the New Testament saying, well, is the whole church an eye? You know, if the whole church was an eye, where would be the feet? Where would be the, you know, if the whole church was a foot, where would, be the, where would be the eye to see the problems? You know, and he went through all of these things and we need each other because each person is going to see a different need. And this is something that's important because there are people here that see needs that I don't even ever know about and would never notice because it's not who I am. There are the things that I notice that other people will never notice because of who I am. And this is very important that we need one another. And we will be unconfounded, un, unashamed when we follow God. Verse 18 says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself hath formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is none else. This is a very this is a, this is a very powerful verse in it. God created the earth. And he created it to be inhabited. We are desperately in this day and age trying to look at space to see if there are any other inhabited planets out there. Evolutionists must find another planet that could be inhabited for them to make a case for evolution. Why are they so desperate to find water and life on Mars? Two reasons, actually. It would give another inhabited planet, but also, we've talked about this, the sun is shrinking at a certain rate. If the sun was millions and trillions of years old, like they want to say, the Earth would be too close to the sun to be able to be inhabited. They need to find evidence that life was on Mars at some point in time so that when the sun shrank they just, and it started getting cold, they moved to Earth. They are desperate to find life on Mars because that would answer one of the strongest problems they have with evolution. They won't find it up there. They're not going to find the life because it wasn't there to be found. Is there life on some other planet? I don't think so, but if there is, it doesn't matter to me because God created it and has it under control. I mean, I believe when man sinned, he, he polluted the entire universe with his sin, and that's caused a problem. Is there other universes? That's another story altogether. The, the physics is telling us there's other universes pressed up against our universe, and I, if there are, God's the God of that universe too. So I have no problem if there's another universe. If there's life on some other universe, go for it, God. Go take care of them. I have no problem with that. I don't believe there's any other life in this universe because God made us as man special. 
And this is important. Satan is battling hard against the idea of man being a special creation. It has since the beginning. This is something, this whole idea of God creating is so important. God created man special. And what is happening in today's world? Well, if evolution is true, we're really not that special. We're just, we're just a higher advanced animal. If many of these cults that believe in reincarnation are true, we're nothing special. We're just, we're just the higher, higher being that is everybody's trying to get to, and we're only the intermediate on, on, on reincarnation because we're supposed to get up to the next level where we're, we're spiritually attuned into the force of the, force of the universe. It's kind of funny when Star Wars came out, all Star Wars was was Eastern mysticism being wrapped up in the space war, the space, space story. All the terms he uses are Eastern mysticism and Hinduism, all wrapped up in, his, in those terms, where the ultimate goal is to be part of the great cosmic power out there, the great cosmic being. And that is all, so that is the whole idea of reincarnation through Hinduism and, and uh, Taoism and, and Buddhism to be part of the great cosmic power. Okay, so man is not important under that religious system. You know, all of these things say that man is not important. What is the ultimate coming out of that? And we're seeing it in our day and age. All of the animal rights people who say man is no more important than an animal. Get these animals out of the zoos, get them out of Get them out of your homes because they shouldn't be your pets because they're, you're, they're just as important as you. Don't protect the animal. If you kill this animal, it's worse than killing, you know, killing the infant in the womb. Yeah. You know, if you really look at the radical environmental movement, man is the problem on this world. That's not God's, that's not God's plan. God created the earth for us. He created it for us and told us to have dominion. That doesn't mean we go out and ruin everything. But he says, we have rule, we were created to have rule over this world. Yeah. He knows what's going on, and he's not going to let it go, go too far. But you know, this whole idea, God created man. He created this world to be inhabited by man. Perfect oxygen level to nitrogen level, perfect food patterns, the fact that we need just so much water, we need so much gravity to be able to survive, and God put it all in place. One of the big arguments for the creation is how perfectly balanced this world is for life. And when you figure there's just the odds needed for this type of environment to be out there, even if they found a planet that was the right distance from their star to produce life is not going to necessarily produce life. It has to have the special orbit that we have. It has to have the right... Uh, right degree of bend on the planet, it has to have the right speed of the planet, it has to have the right gravity. There's so many variables to create life. And then this last verse we're going to look at, have I, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Very important to understand God is not hiding. He is not speaking in silence, you know, uh, into silence or into nothing. He does not tell us to do things that are in vain. 
And this is one of the things that is so important that we understand. God tells us that we are his witnesses. That means he wants us to witness. God tells us he, we are his tools to evangelize this, this world. We are his tool to evangelize and serve this world. He created the heavens and the earth. He is the perfect designer of everything that's out there. And it is an amazing world. Even as fallen as this world is, it is amazing to look at how wonderfully designed it is. You know, the world will look and say, well, you know, if you look at the forearms of man and pigs and dogs and cats and birds, you see this big long bone with another smaller one coming in and one big long bone else. Uh, obvious that they come from each other. Well, I think there might be another answer because nobody can design anything better. I think God said, I've got a perfect design. I'm going to keep reusing it. It's a wonderful design, so we'll just keep using the same design. You know, and that has been, always been my argument when I hear about comparative anatomy. So what better, what better design do you have out there that you want to pitch? God, God designed it. He designed it perfectly. Wonderful plans that we have out there that God says, I speak clearly and I'm not speaking in vain. You know, God didn't tell us to go do things just because to hear the sound of his voice. Now, sometimes parents will do that to their kids, you know, go tell them to do something just, just because they're, you know, angry with them and go, just get busy, go do something. God is not that way. He says, I have spoken clearly. It's not dark. I, I speak righteously and I declare what is right. Our God always does what's right. He always speaks righteously. God is always good. And I love that statement, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You know, because that really is what the Bible says about him. He's always good. And he is good. And we need to just be able to remember that. He is always good. That way when, when I go through something and it makes no sense to me, I can go right back to, God, you're good. I may not understand how this is good. I may not understand why you're good, but you are good. And you always do what is good. Even when I don't understand it, it is good. God wants us to do what's right, but he knows the beginning, he knows the beginning from the end and knows there's going to be times when we do, do things wrong. But it's not going to surprise him when we do it wrong. And he's already got a plan to recover from what we did wrong. And he will make it for good. That is the hard thing for us to understand. You mean, God, even when I totally mess up, you're going to make it for good. That's the promise. That's the promise. It doesn't mean I go out and mess everything up to see how, see how God's going to turn it for good. But even when I do everything wrong, God will do something right and turn something right out of it and do something good out of it. That is mind-boggling. And it doesn't surprise God that it happened. That's so free when you realize that. It takes a lot of worry away. All right, God, I'm going to do what I think is right. If it's not right, you stop me, but I'm going to do... You know, I'm doing what I can, and God, I, I prayed to you. I've asked for lead. I've asked for guidance. Or even if I didn't, God says I still will work that for good. 
That is just mind-boggling. All things work together for good. It doesn't say the good things work together for good. All things work together for good. That means when I get in and I totally mess up my day and I do everything wrong, maybe either on purpose, I am just mad at the world and I'm mad at God and I'm out to sin as much as possible, God says all things work together for good. This is the amazing thing. When we really grab hold of his word and we really... I mean, and that's a verse that I've quoted all my life, and this took me years to really realize all things work together for good. But it, it also applies to those that are lost. God's going to do everything that they do and turn it together for good. Somebody's good. It may not be for their good. It is going to happen, and God has got a reason for it, and he's going to build it. Now, it may just be a really dark spot on the, on the, on the fabric of life that he's doing, you know, that person's life is so bad that it's the shadow of the building on there that is really needed. And said, so it. I needed a really dark, dark life to fill in that shadow. That, that's what their purpose was. But it needed to be there for the picture. Uh, and so we don't know exactly how it's going to work out and what God's doing, but he says all things work together for good. The more you serve God, the more you are a danger to Satan and the more you will be attacked but by the same token, the less you feel like you're being attacked you know, in, in to a degree. Because you're, you're focusing on God, you're focusing on serving, serving him, and Satan is trying to get your eyes off God onto him. Uh, and this is true all the time. If you're just sitting in the pew doing nothing, you're going to live a very easy life. Now, he'd rather not have you in the pew. And he may, he may try to get you out of the pew into not going to church. But if all you're doing is sitting in the pew and you have no intention of going out and witnessing, no, no intention of even maybe giving money to the church, you're just going there, being entertained for, for an hour on Sunday, he'd rather you not be there, but you know, you're not, not going to have a lot of effort. As soon as you get up off that pew and you start doing something, Satan is going to make some attacks. The, the God, will, God will allow Satan so many times to attack us and try to discourage us and... Well, it's not even that. He's, wanting, he's not even that you are tough. He's saying, will you continue to trust me and, and dwell on my strength? Because if you think it's you that's keeping you going, you're going to fall. Oh, no. yeah. Been there, done that. You know, and I've shared with you, when I, got, when I got into workaholism, if somebody had ever told me as a teenager there'd be a day that you don't go to church, I'd have laughed at them. you go, you don't know me. That's my strength. I go to church. Yeah, and then I get down in the business world and I start working seven, you know, six, seven days a week and the next thing you know, I'm, I haven't been to church for two years. Not a conscious decision, not even a decision, but, you know, but it was my strength. It was my strength. I would never, ever not go to church. And the next thing I know, I'm not going to church. And consequently, I'm not reading the Bible, I'm not praying, I'm not thinking about God at all for two years. And not that I ended up going into deep sin and all this other stuff, I just stopped serving God. And it is super easy for this to happen. If, you know, it is super easy. When we get into these things, we need to draw closer and closer to God. And when we feel like we're being overwhelmed, that is when we have to draw closer to God. And it's exactly when we don't feel like drawing closer to God. God, I'm so busy, I don't have time to go read some more or to go to church. And God says, I, you need to be spending more time with me. Spend more time with me. We're, we're going to close in prayer real quick, and then we'll talk.
Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, teach us to follow you closer. Teach us to love you more and to really trust in you and all that you do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.